This morning I'll ask if you will to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We continue to follow along Matthew's account of the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ during that that greatest of all the weeks of all of human history, if you will, the Passion Week. That week when Jesus came into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. And then, uh, as we have been following day by day, uh, the uh, occurrences and events that were pivotal to the ministry of Jesus and, and to our own relationship with God, uh, our salvation, if you will. And so, at this point, Jesus is entering into what we call Good Friday, the last time that we were in the Gospel of Matthew, Sunday before last, you may recall Jesus and His disciples were in that garden called Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed that powerful and agonizing prayer to the Father, uh, asking the Father if it was possible that the cup, meaning the cross, if, a, if that cup uh, could be passed from His lips if possible, yet He says, uh, not My will, but Your will be done. And so Jesus' disciples, even though they had been asked by the Lord to, to stand guard and to be alert and to pray, we know that they succumb to the temptation, the physical fatigue of falling asleep. Not once, but three times. And so we find, you know, this is all developing. And when we left off, we found that Judas, who had gone to betray Jesus, is now coming back to that same location, that garden there on the hill of uh, Mount of Olives, where he intends to carry through with his uh, plot, his sinister plot to betray the Son of God. And so he's got a mob, if you will, thousands, many of them are soldiers, armed, and, and just people that are some are just bystanders who want who are you know curious, want to see what's going to happen, uh, but they're all a part of this. The theme for the message this morning, and I hope you'll take this to heart. The theme of the message is the true nature of our faith in God is revealed in the midst of great trials. You really want to know what a Christian or a person who professes to be a Christian is made of. You watch them. You watch yourself very closely in the heat of the trials of life. You'll find out a lot about the nature of your faith. You will see a lot about the nature of the faith of those around you in these fiery trials. Every person in their lifetime Every person will face fiery trials. Times of great testing. And so if you're not just coming out of one of those fiery trials, you may be in the midst of one with circumstances of your life. If not, then chances are you've got one just ahead of you. And that's a wonderful time to really discover about the true nature of your faith in God. And so I'd ask you, how will your faith fare? in the face of fiery trials today. Don't wait till you find yourself in the midst of that time of hardship and struggle. You determine right now that the faith that you have in God, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, will indeed weather that time and be strong. And so as we look at this portion, we're going to be beginning in verse 57. But before I do, I just want to draw to your attention verse 56 of chapter 26 of Matthew. Matthew 
26, verse 56, the last thing that, that we saw, that we focused on in our previous message, was the fact that Jesus' disciples did what? After following Him and interacting with Him and learning from Him and loving Him for three years, they fled. They deserted Him. All of them scattered. Leaving Jesus alone in the darkness of that evening. Late, late that Thursday night. Going into Good Friday, early, early morning. And so as we look at this, I, I, first of all, I want to just... There are, there are Christians, brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering terribly because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Contemporary historians, church historians tell us that more Christians are being persecuted for their faith in the 21st century than in all the centuries collectively before. Don't think that just because we're living in modern times and there's an openness about acceptability around the world. Oh no, don't think for a second that Christians aren't suffering for their faith. I was just reading this excerpt about an Iranian-born American pastor, Saheed Abedini, who has been sentenced to seven years in a harsh Iranian prison. Why? Because he was simply sharing the gospel with young people in Iran. His family is here in these states, and he's there suffering because of his faith. You talk about a fiery trial. You don't want to be in prison. I don't want to be in prison. But you definitely don't want to be in an Iranian prison and, and be a known Christian. So we need to pray for Pastor Abedini. We need to pray for his family. He's facing a fiery trial because of his faith. But you know what the world is seeing? The world is seeing this man knows what he stands for. This man is not ashamed of his faith in Jesus Christ. He's the real deal. He's willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. And I think about others down through history, like the German Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood up against Nazi, the Nazi regime of Adolf Hitler to stand on his faith, and he saw the, 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 the effects of, of the Nazi philosophy that secular philosophy upon his beloved country. And he stood for his Christian principles and ended up imprisoned and ended up being executed for his faith. I read where Representative Frank Wolf, Republican from Virginia, obviously a Christian, and he's introduced legislation into the uh, Congress, into Congress, and it has passed the House of Representatives. And basically what it advocates is on behalf of minority religions around the world, that they would not be persecuted. He's simply saying that our nation needs to, to take a strong stand against these Middle East nations that are predominantly Islam and are knowingly torturing, killing, arresting, as, a, as in the pastor Abedini, persecuting Christians simply because of their faith. Unfortunately, his measure has stalled in the Senate. So you may want to consider getting on the phone or getting on the Internet and letting your senator know 
our senators know that you'd like to see this legislation passed. It's about time that the United States takes a stand in support of those who are being persecuted and executed in other parts of the world simply because of the faith. So, today we're going to look at, at faith. We're talking about a trial of faith. And I want to look at three different perspectives that are brought out, I believe, in these passages in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 57. And the first I would describe as a faith that failed. A faith that failed. A faith in God that failed. And folks, a faith that fails is actually no faith. It's not a faith at all. In fact, in Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 6, he says, but without faith it is impossible to know God. For the one who comes to God must first recognize that He is. And that is, He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. You can't know God. You can't please God, the Bible says, without faith. And so as we look in the Scriptures that I share with you here today, let me just give you this little footnote. Consider what John says in John chapter 1, verse 11, about Jesus coming into the world. And, and if you want to talk about a faith failure, Israel as a people had a major faith failure when it came to receiving the Messiah. Because in John chapter 1, verse 11, it says, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. Talk about a faith failure. We see this is tragically illustrated here. I want you to examine it with me, beginning in verse 57. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and, and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. Now notice how many times Matthew is qualifying the witnesses who do show up are actually false witnesses. Witnesses who have been bribed or coerced into saying something hopefully incriminated against the Lord. In verse 61, they said, This fellow, didn't even call him by his name, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Actually, even what they said there is not accurate. You can go to John chapter 2 and verse 21, where, uh, verse 19, where Jesus is actually talking about the temple complex. And he says, if the, he, he says, if this building is, they're looking at the temple complex, he just says, makes this statement. He says, if this building is torn down, he says, I can rebuild it in three days. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to tear down the temple. In actuality, He wasn't even talking about the temple building. He was talking about His own body being crucified. And He raising it in resurrection power. So you see the nature of the only witnesses they had to try to incriminate Jesus? And the high priest arose, this is verse 62, and said to Him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, 
I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man, a term that is used in Scripture for the Messiah, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the, of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now let's just stop there for a second. Because I want you to see, we talk about faith failure, you first have to look at one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas. You're talking about a faith failure. Going back in chapter 26, in verse 48, you remember that night when Jesus was observing the last of the Passover meals with His disciples? We know it as the Lord's Supper there. And, 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 and then Judas had betrayed Jesus. He went to the priest and betrayed him. Now he brings the, the people to, to arrest Jesus in the garden. In verse 48, it says, Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whoever I, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? I believe Jesus was giving Judas every opportunity possible to repent. Every opportunity possible to turn the course of His way. And even called Him friend at this point. But you see, the damage had been done. Because back in Luke chapter 22, in verse 48, we know that Jesus came, uh, uh, Judas came to Jesus and, and Jesus said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Have you stooped so low that this is what you're doing, Judas? Stop and consider this. Why is Judas having a faith failure? In John's Gospel, in chapter 13, verse 27, we are told that at the time of the Lord's Supper, when Jesus is, is, is just revealed to His disciples that one of them is going to betray them, betray Him, John asked Jesus, Lord, who is it? Privately, who is it? And so Jesus is dipping His bread into the, into the cup, the sop, and, and He tells John, He says, it's the one who is dipping His bread right now. Now Judas is sitting next to Him, dipping His bread, and He's got His bread in the cup of Jesus. Jesus says, the one who's going to betray Me is the one who's dipping His bread in the sop right now. And Judas is like, yipes! He'd been revealed. But the Scripture goes on to say at that point, Satan entered Judas. There it was downhill. Because this revealed the true nature of Judas. He had no faith in Jesus Christ. He did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And he, whereas the other disciples had, had, had faith in the Lord, though weak, we'll see. When you look into the heart of Judas, there's a black hole. Being manipulated by Satan made him one of the most treacherous and, and sinister persons in, in all the history of mankind. In fact, people would use the expression, you are like a Judas. The lowest level. So, the initial faith failure, if you're looking for people who claim to have faith in God, and it turned out their faith was no faith whatsoever, Judas would be the first. But then we look at the religious leaders, and that's the passage that we're looking at here in chapter 26. Those who are professed to be the spiritual elite of the nation of Israel. And they had an agenda. Earlier in chapter 26, we get a glimpse of that agenda as Jesus 
is encountering the religious leaders of His day. It says in chapter 26, verse 1, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that He said to His disciples, You know that after two days in the Passover the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. Look at verse 3. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and to kill Him. And we see this Paralleled again in Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, they were engaged in a plot. To, they had one thing on their mind. This Jesus had come into Jerusalem and was threatening their religious empire. And they were not going to tolerate that, and they were determined to get rid of Him. Why? Because of their own self-centered religious blind, blindness towards the Lord, spiritual blindness. There was no semblance of, of truth in them. And in the manner that they handled Jesus. Now, as we go back to chapter 26, verse 57, I want you to understand that the Sanhedrin is the council of the land. They're supposed to be the supreme spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. In every community where there were over 120 families, each of those communities had their own council. And these were men who were, who were put in positions in the local um, assembly there to bring judgment upon matters of the people, to guide the people spiritually. And then from those local councils, there were 70 scribes and, and high priests, or the high priests and scribes and, and the religious leaders who made up the Sanhedrin. And so this is supposed to be the elite of the nation of Israel. They were, they were entrusted with carrying out judicial supremacy in the land of Israel. Now I want you to listen as I go back into Old Testament. And this, this is, these are the standards that had been established for the judicial system in Israel, whereby the Sanhedrin is supposed to be practicing. In chapter 16, in verse 18, out of... Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 16, 18. Listen to what, what he says. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous you shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is given. God had placed, put into place a judicial system based upon the teachings that given through Moses. God had put into place a judicial system that was supreme above all other judicial systems in the world. In fact, our own judicial system finds some of its roots in the Jewish judicial system. And yet, by the time Jesus comes along, this system of judging people and exacting the law had become so contaminated by those who were entrusted with the leadership. The great Sanhedrin of, of Jerusalem was made up the, of the high priest, the chief priests, elders, and scribes. Men who were supposed to be of impeccable character and respected in the nation of Israel. And I want you to see... As, we, as I've just read here, I want you to see the infractions that they are guilty of in their own judicial standards. For 
instance, according to the Mosaic Law, the requirement specified that the accused was never to be tried in private. The, the, the hearings were always supposed to be public hearings where the public could scrutinize as their leaders were judging someone. And yet we were told here in the Scriptures that they privately, secretly went out to arrest Jesus and commenced with the trial. According to the Mosaic Law, these trials were never to be done at night. According to, and we know that this was happening somewhere shortly after midnight on Friday. According to the Mosaic standards that the Sanhedrin was bound to, these trials were not supposed to be taking place during any week of feast. Because if a person were found guilty from the time of the verdict until the time of the sentence, there was to be three days of fasting. And you don't fast during the feast week. Just listen to the, the infractions. The, according to the Mosaic standards, the witnesses against the defendant had to be above reproach. And in absolute agreement with specifics such as date, time, and exact words spoken. And I want you to notice that in the case here, every witness that was brought forth, Matthew said they were false witnesses. These witnesses that came forth, there as you look, and they, it, it says in verse 61, all they could say is, as this fellow said, I can... I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. A viable witness was supposed to be able to name the date, the time, exact words, and there'd be no question about their reputation. In fact, there's much said in Deuteronomy about the responsibility of being a witness. So much so that when a person came forward, and it always had to be two people who were in exact agreement about the details of the accused. And, and, and so much weight was put on the responsibility and the reliability of the witness that once a person was condemned to die, the witness had to accompany the person and witness the execution. And yet, one after another after another, they were calling false witnesses against our Lord, trying to find... Listen, they arrested Jesus. They were putting Him on trial... And didn't even have a charge. Which again was a violation of the Mosaic standards for the judiciary of, of Israel. In the Mosaic standards, any time a death penalty was pronounced, it could not be carried out for three days after the verdict was rendered. And we know that Jesus was executed the very same day. Simon Greenleaf, professor of law at Harvard University, in his book, The Testimony of the Evangelist, said, and I quote, to, to carefully protect a defendant against self-incrimination, his confession, no matter how convincing, was not sufficient in and of itself for conviction. And yet we find here in verse 63 where the high priest is pinning Jesus down. When the witnesses don't pan out, he's... He's trying desperately to find something by which they might not just arrest Jesus and hold Him in jail. They want, to, they want to kill Him. They want to execute Him. And so the high priest, trying to elicit a confession from the Lord, says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
And of course, Jesus responded in the affirmative. But even according to the Mosaic standards, if a person made a confession, you couldn't convict them even on their own words. It was abundantly clear this was not a just occurrence. This was not a happening based on being practicing justice. This murderous mob that had Jesus in captivity under arrest at this point was not interested in justice. They were interested only in vengeance. Folks, I submit to you that as you watch the events unfold, as Jesus stood before the high religious leaders of the land of Israel that day, there was a major faith failure on behalf of the very leaders of the nation of Israel. There is no faith represented there. For every person that stands before the Lord and lives their lives before God, even for those who claim to, quote, know God, to not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and have made a profession of faith in Him, your faith is a no faith. It's a faith failure. And I believe there are many people in our country today some sitting in churches today. Some who go out in, in their communities and use the title Christian who, if put to the test, facing a trial such as this, you would find out there is no real faith. They're suffering from an absolute faith failure. I ask you today, if you were put through such a trial, if you were put in, 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 endure great hardships because of your relationship with the Lord or supposed relationship with the Lord, how will your faith fare? Will it bear up as genuine faith? As I move along, I want you to see not only a faith that failed, but I want you to see a faith that stumbled. It's interesting because in the context of, the, of chapter 26, beginning in verse 57, we see a trial, a supposed trial going on. You're going to see a religious trial, and then later you're going to see political trials or secular trial that Jesus is subjected to. But, but in the course of this, in the midst of this, against the backdrop of the trial of Jesus, you see that, that certain person's faith is being tried. Judas failed. The religious leader's faith failed. Well, let's look at faith that stumbled. And I'll take you to verse 56 where I mentioned earlier, what about Jesus' disciples? They all fled. They all left Him. They all deserted Him, just as Jesus had said that they would do. A faith that stumbles, ladies and gentlemen, it is a faith. It is a genuine faith. But it is a weak faith. It is an immature faith. As Jesus would often say in the Scriptures, and we saw this through the course of the Gospel of Matthew, He would call it a little faith. Almost like a term of endearment when He talked to His disciples in Matthew chapter 6, and He was trying to convince them, to show them against the backdrop of the kingdom of God, that as God's people, we don't have to worry. We don't have to worry about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. He says, you know, you don't have to worry. Oh, you a little faith. Jesus understood the nature of the, the, the faith of His disciples. They had faith, but it was weak. 
Later you may recall when Jesus and His disciples were in the boat crossing the Sea of Galilee in, in Matthew chapter 8, and verse 26, when the storm grew up and, and Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. Do you remember what happened? The disciples, the, some of the seasoned sailors, they went to Jesus and they were crying, Lord, we're going to perish! Jesus woke up, do you remember what He says? Oh, ye of little faith. Oh, ye of immature faith. And then later, in another incident, on the Sea of Galilee, chapter 14, we know Jesus was on the shore, the disciples out in the Sea of Galilee, storm brew up, the, the boat was being tossed, they were fighting against the waves, and look, lo and behold, here comes somebody walking on top of the waves, and they said, oh, it's a ghost! And Jesus said, be at peace, it's, it's me. And then he... Peter says, Lord, uh, if it's you, how about calling me out of the boat? How about let me experience this thing of walking on the water? Jesus said, come on. And Peter began to walk on the water, didn't he? He was walking on the water in the midst of a storm. And then when he took his eyes off of Jesus and looked around and became distracted by the waves and the wind, what happened? He began to sink. He said, save me! And of course the Lord reached out and raised him up. But Jesus says, O oh, ye of little faith. Almost as a term, Jesus understood. He wasn't condemning Peter. He wasn't condemning the other disciples. He was just giving them a, a faith assessment, a spiritual assessment. You have faith, but your faith is still so immature. Peter, if you had strong faith, if you had mature faith, you could have just walked anywhere you wanted to. You could have walked on over to the shore. And now we see Jesus' disciples who have deserted Him. Jesus told them that He had predicted to them in verse 31. He says, uh, over there, He's quoting out of Zechariah 13.7 in Matthew 26.31. Jesus said, uh, All of you will be made to stumble because of, of Me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered and sure enough, in verse 60, verse 56, that's exactly what they did. Despite having pledged their loyalty to the Lord. Oh, when Jesus was talking about uh, predicting earlier in the Gospel of Matthew that He was going to be arrested and He would be uh, crucified. And they were saying, oh Lord, we're with you, Peter especially. Don't you worry, Lord, we're with you. we got your back. We'll, nobody can cause us to ever leave you. And now, they're scattered because of the weak faith. Let's focus primarily on the Apostle Peter. Because he tends to be the one when things are going good. He made a great profession of faith in Christ as, as, as being the Son of God. And, and, and Jesus said, you know, blessed are you, uh, Simon Bar-Jonah. You know, you didn't get this from man. God will reveal this to you. And this profession of faith, I'll build my church upon it and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Oh, Peter was rocking then. But then Peter had his weak moments too. And so as we look here in Matthew's Gospel, beginning in verse 69... Let's just see what's going on here with Peter. Now Peter sat outside the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. In other words, he's, he's saying, "But well, God is my witness. I tell you, I don't know this man. It's good with each of the denials, he's becoming a little bit more 
assertive, if you will. And in verse 73, And after a while, those who stood by came to Him and said to Peter, Surely you are also one of them, because your speech betrays you. In other words, you know, this is the, the season of the Passover. Pilgrims are coming from all over. And so there are all kinds of Jews assembling, and, and, and they can distinguish the Judean Christians, or, or Jews can, can discriminate. They, they can deter, discern that this is not a man from Judah. This is a man from Galilee. He's one of Jesus' own disciples. And in John's Gospel, John tells us in chapter 18, verse 26, Lo and behold, who would happen to be amongst the crowd? You remember when they came to arrest Jesus and Peter reached in and got his sword and whacked off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest? And John tells us that man's name was Malchus. Well, guess who was in the crowd? Not Malchus, but his brother. John says that even at that time when they were accusing Peter of being one of Jesus' disciples, Malchus, his brother, stepped forward and said, I know, I saw you. You were in the garden. He may have gone on to say, you whacked off my brother's ear. And he's not too pleased about that. But under all of this pressure, you see Peter denying Jesus over and over and over. And then... In verse 74, he began to curse and swear. I do not know the man. You know what Peter's saying? He's saying, I tell you, I say to God, strike me dead if I'm lying. I don't know this man. I don't even know what you're talking about. And Jesus had already forewarned Peter. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 32 and 33, Jesus had already told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan desires permission to sift you like grain. He says, but I have prayed for you, for you that your faith will not fail. So Jesus had already prayed for Peter, knowing he was going to go into this, and you know, Peter told the Lord there in that passage, he said, I, I, I'll never deny you. And Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows this day, you will have denied me. Not once, not twice, but three times, Peter. You will see just how weak your faith really is. But Peter, I'm praying for your faith that it will not fail. And look in verse 74. After Peter had cursed and declared he didn't know Jesus, and immediately a rooster crowed. Now, what do you think? What's going on in Peter's mind? He's just denied Jesus three times. A rooster crows. Triggers something in his mind. He says, rooster crow. Oh, no! And we're told in another portion of the Word, in another Gospel account, where Jesus turns and looks out the window. And looks right into the eyes of Peter. Peter remembers. Peter's heart is flooded with remorse. Why do we know that? Because in verse 75 it says, And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And look, Peter then went out and wept bitterly. Is he, is he a crybaby? No. I believe Peter cried out of deep remorse 
which was a sign of that was repentance working in his heart. Unlike Judas, who could continue on with his murderous plot and show no regret, show no remorse, because there was no faith. His faith had failed. Peter had faith. It was a weak faith, but it was a faith that the Lord had prayed for. Let me take you back to verse 65. After Jesus had made the confession of who He was and the priest stood up in verse 65, it says the high priest tore his clothes saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Look now, you have heard His blasphemy. What do you think? And the Sanhedrin all responds and says, He is deserving of death. But look, the religious leaders, the spiritual elite, the cream of the crop of the people of God... I want you to see the response now. After that, then they spat in his face. That was a, that, in that culture was the lowest insult you could inflict upon another man. To spit in his face. They spat in his face. They beat him. These are the leaders. Others struck him with the palms of their hand. They slapped him in the face. All of these are intended to insult him, degrade him. Saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one who struck you? So while they're pummeling the Lord and beating him in the face and spitting in his face and slapping him in the face and treating him with such degradation, this is all going on in the house of Caiaphas and Peter is in the courtyard. He's probably, if not watching this, he's hearing this. So that when he denies Christ for the third time, Jesus turns his bloodied, bruised, spat-saturated face and looks into the eye of his disciple. Folks, it touched something deep in Peter's heart. First he remembered, there was the remorse, which triggers the repentance, I believe. We'll see that later. Which brought about later in John chapter 21, the restoration. Why do I say that? Why am I making a point about that? Because you and I are liable to have and exercise weak faith, immature faith from time to time. And in the face of great trials and hardships and struggles, when our faith is put through the test, you may find yourself like Peter. You say, heaven forbid that I would deny the Lord. I'm not saying that you would deny the Lord, but with your own words as Peter did, but there may be times in your life where you have actually denied Him by your actions, where you had a chance to stand up when people were asking you about your faith, or where you saw a terrible wrong being done, or some immorality being practiced, and you chose to remain silent while others around you knew that you, you, you proposed to be a Christian. Folks, that's as much as denying your faith. Or denying Christ. And maybe you're here today and you're struggling with some guilt. Or maybe you will face a terrible time of fiery trial in your walk with the Lord and you will find yourself faltering in your faith. I want to offer you a word of hope. The same Peter that denied Christ three times was absolutely restored to him. And not only Peter, so were the other disciples. The very ones that ran like chickens and scattered later were restored. These same weak faith individuals, once 
Pentecost occurred and the Spirit of God came down and they were filled with the Spirit of God and made complete in their faith. These same supposed weak faith disciples were preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the Roman Empire to such a degree that their opponents were complaining to the authorities saying these disciples are turning the world upside down. You ask me, I think that's a pretty restored faith. And Jesus will do the same thing for you. Are you holding back in your walk with the Lord because of something that happened in the past where you faltered in your faith? You didn't take a stand when you should have, you could have. Maybe you're living with guilt and thinking, well, surely the Lord's not going to use me now. I'm, He's written me off. I'm a has-been. Oh no, there's always, always room for repentance and restoration. And so even contemporary Christians, you know, Peter was writing in his first epistle to the church, and, and Pastor Chad touched on this in the Christian growth group this morning. Peter learned a lesson. How do we know he learned a lesson? Because when he wrote later to the church that was being persecuted, and I read this excerpt from the Roman historian Tacitus, talking about early Christians. You're talking about suffering, facing fiery trials for your faith. Listen to what this Roman contemporary historian wrote about Christians of his day. He says, besides being put to death, they were made to serve as objects of amusement. They, talking about the Christians in the first century, the ones that Peter's writing to, they were clad in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others were set on fire to serve to illuminate the night with day, uh, when daylight fell. You're talking about facing fiery trials. And Peter is writing now, in, in, in his first epistle in chapter 6, listen to what he says in, in verse 6 of chapter 1 of first epistle, uh, first Peter. He says, In this you greatly rejoice. Talking to those who are going through these kinds of trials. He says, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom not having not seen you love, though now you do not see Him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full glory. Do you hear what Peter is saying? Of all the people, the one who suffered a, 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 a faltering faith, a weak faith, is now writing to Christians and encouraging the Christians who are facing fiery trials of persecution. He's saying, hang in there. Your faith has been tested, but like gold, it will be purified. It will be made perfect, and you will receive the joy as a result of this. And finally, I want to close by bringing to your attention what I believe the Scripture shows us is a faith that prevailed. If you look back here in chapter 26 of Matthew's Gospel, look at verse 42 with me. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I believe this is where we see the relationship at the very core of the relationship of the Father and the Son. He says, O oh, Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, away from me unless... I drink it, your will be done. What does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus the Son trusted God the Father absolutely, totally. He was putting Himself in the absolute hands of the Father. A faith that prevails is a mature and a perfect faith. And I believe that Jesus modeled this. 
How do we know he modeled this? Even when he was being subjected to the trial that he was, this kangaroo court, if you will, and, and, and the high priest was questioning him. In verse 62, the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is that? These men testify against you. And it says, but Jesus kept silent. Was Jesus intimidated? Was Jesus withdrawn because of fear? No. I think what you see is meekness. Meekness is not to be confused with weakness. Meekness is strength under absolute control. Power under absolute control. Jesus remained silent because He knew confidently that everything was okay. He knew that everything was under control. He knew what He was going to be facing. He knew the outcome of the trial. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that He would be dying on a cross before the end of that day to pay the price for the sins of helpless, hopeless humanity like you and me. He remained silent because that's what He did to exercise His trust, to demonstrate His trust in God the Father. Dr. John MacArthur in his commentary calls Jesus' silence a majestically silent episode. Jesus was demonstrating that. And I believe the Apostle Peter, as he looked back in hindsight, realized just what Jesus was doing. If I can take you back to 1 Peter again, I want you to see in chapter 2, Peter was writing to these Christians who were being persecuted. He's writing to you and me today. He was helping them to remember what Jesus did and how Jesus faced the fiery trial of, of, the, of His time. Not just the, the, the religious trial, not just the political trial, but the testing of His relationship with God the Father. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, look, listen to what Peter says. He, for, he says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps, who committed no sin, nor was guile found in His mouth. Peter saying to the Christians, Look to Jesus. When you find your faith being tested, when you're in the fiery trials, look to Jesus. Remember how our Lord, being so inhumanely treated and unjustly handled, remember how Jesus faced His trial. And you walk in His footsteps. And trust the Lord. And I believe that Christians not only are encouraged by those words, but I believe knowing this, Christians like the Apostle James says in chapter 1 of James in verse 2, Christians seek opportunities whereby their faith might be made strong. Listen to what James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect or mature and complete Lacking nothing. There is a purpose for God's people who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to encounter fiery trials in your life. It's not just wasted time that you struggle and you agonize and you're in, uh, insecure and all of that. No, it's a time where you put your faith to the test. You lean on the Lord. You trust in His Word. You realize that God is in control. And you realize that Jesus is interceding for you. He told Peter, Peter, you're going to be tested. You're going to face a trial. Satan's going to sift you like grain, but I will pray for you. And if 
Jesus prayed for His beloved disciple Peter. I believe He's interceding for every one of His followers today, whether they be in Iran, in a prison, or facing a firing squad in, in Sudan, or some other part of the world. Listen, I believe that Jesus is praying for the faith of all of His people, so that when we face the fiery trials, our faith will stand. You want to look for strong Christians, brothers and sisters? Don't look for the ones who have lived a pampered life. Don't look for the ones who have lived a comfortable, superficial, quote, Christian life. Don't look for the ones that have had silver spoons to feed them all their lives or have suffered nothing for the cause of Christ or don't dare to go out there to take chances for the cause of the kingdom. No, I challenge you to look for the people who are out there on the firing lines, on the cutting edge, where their faith is being tested and where they are suffering consequences, taking risks, and they're facing consequences as a result. There you will find, there you will find faith in its perfection. And so I take you back to the original question that we started the message with. How is your faith? How will your faith stand up in the face of fiery trials? I pray that it will be strong. That you will be faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You we thank You for the wonderful, perfect example that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not only taught, but lived, modeled for us. Lord Jesus, we thank You that as You prayed there in John 17 to, to the Father, you, were, you, you made a point of saying that You had sanctified Yourself for the benefit of those who believe upon You. Lord, You made Yourself an example so that those of us who are Your disciples, knowing that we will face times of trials and hardships and testing, that we have a perfect example to follow. And it's all built on trusting in God. Trusting in the Word of God. Relying upon the Holy Spirit of God. And realizing that You, O oh Father, You are faithful and You are all-powerful and You are able to deliver Your children. Help us, Lord, in our trials. Help us to stand strong. Help us to grow in our Christian maturity and help us to be faithful as your witnesses. Lord, I pray for the needs in the lives of your people here today. I ask, Lord, if there, if there be anyone here today who, who has a superficial faith that, that is not a faith at all, going through the motions, God, I pray that You would help them to, to see how absolutely bankrupt spiritually they are and how they need to take a genuine step of faith to truly trust You and confess their sins and to ask You to forgive them of their sins and to come into their life as their, as their Lord and Master and to follow You no matter what the cost. I pray that they would be saved, truly, genuinely saved today. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here today, Lord, knowing that we are living in very troubled times, even in this culture in which we live that is growing increasingly hostile, antagonistic towards the Christian faith. Lord, now more than ever in America, Christians need to have strong faith. 
And so, God, we thank You that we can learn from the wonderful passages of the Scriptures, even in that Passion Week, the example that You've set for us, that we might be strong in our faith and faithful in our walk with You. I pray, Lord, that You search our hearts, our lives right now. Show us where we need to make decisions, commitments, that we might walk stronger in our faith with You. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.